In nature, a wildfire is one of the most devastating natural forces. It burns hot and fast and leaves little behind but ash and char. Or so it seems. Very soon after the fire passes through the forest, life returns. Shrubs and weeds that clog the forest floor have burned away, leaving space for new trees, grasses, and flowers to emerge and flourish. Habitats are created, bringing new insects, birds, reptiles, and mammals. A cancer diagnosis can feel like a wildfire, our bodies becoming this new, fire-clarified landscape. For some, cancer changes utterly everything. For others, cancer brings greater clarity and purpose. And some of us are still searching for what life after a cancer diagnosis will look like. Welcome to The Burn. We are exploring stories of life and transformation following a breast cancer diagnosis. I'm April Stearns, the founder and editor of Wildfire Magazine and the host of this podcast. Today, we're going to hear a story about the immediate life-shattering aftermath of a breast cancer diagnosis. The roller coaster of emotions that can spiral a person down to a dark place of feeling utterly betrayed by and at war with their body. But the story we'll hear is more than that. My guest today shows us in her writing how she went from life shattering to life affirming. The diagnosis story we'll be hearing is a stage four de novo metastatic breast cancer diagnosis. Let me unpack that for you for a sec. For anyone who may not know, breast cancer is categorized in stages from stage zero to stage four. Stage four is when the breast cancer has traveled beyond the breast and lymph nodes to other organs in the body, such as the bones, liver, lungs, or brain. A de novo diagnosis means it's the initial diagnosis. Stage four, right off the bat. Another thing to know about a stage four diagnosis is this is the type of breast cancer that is fatal. It is the kind that is robbing us of our friends and family at a rate of 116 people each day. My guest today was diagnosed with metastatic breast cancer following her very first mammogram at 42. Erin Weiss is a mom and a psychotherapist. She's been living with breast cancer since August 2019. And before I let Erin share her story, I just want to say a little bit about why Erin's story is so important for all of us. The truth is metastatic breast cancer, or MBC, is the dark underbelly of breast cancer. It doesn't get nearly the airtime the earlier stages of breast cancer get. We need more stories of what it's like to live with MBC, what it's like to work and parent and date and go about life in the shadow of a terminal illness. Erin's story takes us right to the day she received this devastating diagnosis and shows us what it's like to not only bear that weight on a very real very day-to-day level, but also how to shift that weight to something more manageable. We need this view. Maybe some of you listening to me right now are scared. Maybe you were diagnosed early stage and your biggest fear is a stage four recurrence of your breast cancer. You think the last thing you want to hear right now is a story of your worst fear. I understand this anxiety. I get it. But I want to ask that you hang in here today. Hearing stories like the one you're about to hear will not bring doom to your house, I promise. We can talk about hard things because it's actually the best antidote for fear and anxiety. Amplifying stories like Aaron's give us the opportunity to develop empathy for one another and for the metastatic breast cancer community. It also gives us a little bit of a roadmap should we find ourselves in Aaron's shoes. I think you'll find Aaron's story to be one of hope, hope for her and hope for us. 
All right, let's get to it. Welcome to the barn, Erin. Hi, April. Thank you. Thank you. So today, Erin is here to read a piece she wrote for Wildfire Magazine's 2021 family issue. This was an issue in which we explored what it means to a family when breast cancer is in the mix. Erin, you'll be reading a piece you wrote called Feeling Good as Hell? Question mark. After you read, we'll talk about your process for learning to live with breast cancer. And those of you listening, stay tuned to the very end for a writing prompt inspired by today's episode. All right, Erin, I'll let you take us into your story now. All right. This is Feeling Good as Hell. I was driving my two young boys to school at 7.50 in the morning on a Thursday in mid-September. We were jamming out to Lizzo in the car, all of us doing our best hair toss, checking our nails, and feeling good as hell. My phone rang over the Bluetooth, interrupting our sing-along. I answered it, not recognizing the number, assuming it would be yet another robocall telling me to extend my car's warranty. Instead, it was my breast surgeon letting me know that my staging MRI I had on Tuesday came back, and it turns out that no, I didn't have stage 1 or 2 or even stage 3 breast cancer. He was calling to inform me that I had stage 4 with mets to the bones in my hip and spine, my lymph nodes in my mediastinum, my supraclavicular lymph nodes, as well as my regular old breast tumors and tumors in the axial lymph nodes in my right armpit. Let's do a PET scan. Take care. The mood in the car changed. My eight and six-year-old boys had no idea what they heard, but they knew it was bad. Lizzo came back on once I hung up, reminding me to kick off my shoes, take a deep breath, and focus on me. I smashed my trembling hand against the power button of the car stereo, ending the battle cry for self-love. I started to have a panic attack instead and could barely breathe, let alone see well enough to drop off my kids. But I did, mid-panic attack, my kids shaken and terrified as I sobbed, I love you, out the door to them as I pulled away. The first months of my de novo diagnosis were filled with missteps, featuring a horrible treatment plan from an uninformed doctor, which led to me doing three rounds of chemo and losing my waist-length blonde hair. I then went to a university-affiliated research hospital and got on an appropriate treatment plan for de novo metastatic breast cancer, or MBC. And suddenly I was better. I was still dying, but not now, not visibly so. And all the outreach and the meal trains and the care packages and the pink ribbon stuff stopped. And I was left with a body that had betrayed me, that I didn't recognize in the mirror, that I hated. As much as Lizzo encouraged me to dry my eyes and try to touch the sky, I wanted to destroy myself. I wanted to feel nothing and something all at the same time. I needed to turn off the pain, fear, anxiety, and anguish that came from facing my own very real mortality. And I wanted to feel something, anything but those feelings. In the beginning, I chose to punish myself. This body betrayed me, I would destroy it. I drank excessively. I would pass out on the sofa with a glass of wine in my hand and wake up to my son tapping me awake at five, telling me to go to bed. I stayed up until all hours. I either didn't eat or ate too much, a loose version of restricting and binging that I had grown out of in college. I stopped talking to my husband because I couldn't handle the realities we were facing. 
We discussed grocery lists and logistics, and I turned inward even more. I did not recognize the person I saw in the mirror. I hated her with her weird hair and fat, round, prednisone-bloated face and acne from menopause. Why put on makeup? You have no eyelashes. Why get dressed? You look awful anyway. I wallowed in my self-pity for a long time. And then COVID-19 happened, and I got locked inside my house with my immunocompromised self and my kids and my husband, and something changed. Everyone in the country was terrified of their mortality, and I thought, ha, I've already done this. I'm not scared. And somewhere, deep down inside, a tiny fire was lit, and I remembered that I had a life worth living. Slowly but surely, I started to claw my way out of the giant pit of despair I had fallen into. My life was in ruins, and it was time to start rebuilding from the remnants of the storm that were scattered all around. I started running again, and lifting, and riding my stationary bike. I found joy in the burning in my lungs and the soreness in my muscles as my physical self came back to life. I began having long, intense conversations with my spouse about where I had been mentally since September, and our emotional intimacy became stronger. And through the stress of homeschooling my kids while trying to work full-time, I still managed to find time to just talk to them and giggle and be present. My nine-year-old talks endlessly about Fortnite, and my seven-year-old wants to do TikTok dances. My kids have aged 10 years within one year. But that's what happens when you watch your mom face mortality and come out on the other side. Through all of this, I have learned to make space for daily gratitudes. It keeps me tethered to the present and prevents my mind from spiraling out of control down the path of what ifs. At the end of each day, I note at least three things that happened that day that I am grateful for. Some days I can come up with 10 things. Some days I struggle to find three. Self-care with MBC, especially during a pandemic, is not about the huge acts like getting spa days and going on girls' weekends. It is about appreciating the little things in life that lots of people take for granted, like watching the pink and red embers of a slowly setting sun, or listening to the tinkling giggles of a child, or fresh laundry that smells like the embodiment of a comforting hug. For us, those little things are often the most special. Every day, I am grateful that I woke up, have family and friends that love me, and a body that is responding to treatments and fighting this cancer. And eventually, I hope to once again have hair long enough to toss, check my nails, and live my best life, just like Lizzo intended. Oh, thank you so much for that, Erin. Such a powerful piece. Thank you. Let's take a little break right here. Um, We'll let you catch your breath. And then when we come back, we'll chat a little bit more about your powerful transformation from life is over to life is worth living. Hi, my name is Emily Purcell, and I was diagnosed with breast cancer at 27 years old, one year into my new marriage. I have been a Wildfire magazine subscriber for years and feel like I found my people. I love mail days when the new issue arrives. The physical magazine is beautiful, but the words written by so many women who have similar stories to mine is soul-fulfilling. Everyone just wants to be understood, and reading Wildfire makes being a part of this cancer club a little more bearable and a lot more beautiful. All right. Thank you, Emily, for that. 
All right, we're back with today's guest, Erin Wise. Erin, thank you again for your powerful writing. I'd love to ask you a few questions if you're game. I'm up for it. Awesome. So first up, let me just ask you how you are today. I know that with an MBC diagnosis, it changes all the time. So how how's your health now? Um, I am actually doing really well. Um, I, in fact, had a checkup with my oncologist yesterday, which is always... Uh, I guess anxiety provoking, but um, it's always nice to be on the other side of them. I have, in fact, no evidence of metastatic disease right now. I still have a uh, breast tumor that remains, just the original one. I call it my OG, my original gangster of a breast tumor. And um, it is not active at all, and it has shrunk uh, by I think three quarters of what it was originally, which is really great. So, um, yeah, I'm doing very well. I think the biggest problem that I'm facing right now, I feel great, um, is that I have pretty severe osteoporosis, um, through all of my vertebra in my back and in my hips. Um, and in fact, all of my bones. Um, and that is just from being put through surgical menopause because I'm hormone receptor positive, um, as well as the um, treatments that I'm on for controlling my cancer. But otherwise, I'm great. Oh, I love hearing that. Um, no one can see, but the whole time Aaron was talking, I was just grinning like ear to ear. So <laughs> good news, Aaron. Thank you. Sure. Yeah. So let's talk a little about writing as self-care, you know, writing as palliative care. Tell us a little more about your gratitude practice and how it gave you a step-by-step ladder out of that really dark place for you. And specifically, I wonder if you can get literal because I have a feeling someone's listening to this is thinking like, oh, yeah, I've heard I should have a gratitude practice, but how does a person even do that? And I know you you put pen to paper on a really, really dark day somehow. So how did if you can take us back to that day, how did it start for you? I, um, of course, had seen pretty much everywhere. In fact, I've told clients of mine as a psychotherapist to have a gratitude journal. And I always felt like it was something I should be doing, um, but could never bring myself to do. But I think what has helped me significantly is that as much as I enjoy the idea of writing every day in a journal for myself, I let myself off the hook with needing to put pen to paper specifically to, to note, um, what I was grateful for. So before I go to bed every day, I kind of go through my day and think about, um, what has happened that day and what I'm grateful for that has occurred. Sometimes I write it down. Sometimes I don't. Um, it, it really kind of depends on what's happened that day, how tired I am, you know, what's going on in the evenings. Um, but, I definitely go through and force myself to pull out at least three things. Some days, like I said in my piece, there are so many that happen um, that I can point to and say, all of these wonderful things happen today. And some days it's tough. There are hard days, but I think that's true for everyone. So um, I often do fall back on some of the very basic principles that I think a lot of people overlook when I'm really struggling. I think about things like, well, I got to take a really nice hot shower this morning or my cup of coffee was really delicious when I had it. 
um, or whatever it may be. I, my son had a really big smile this, you know, when I picked him up from school today or whatever it is. Um, but that is helping me focus on the good because I think it's very easy for a lot of people to myself included, which is how this kind of came up. Um, it's really easy to focus on all of the things that are wrong, all of the negative aspects about your day. Um, following my diagnosis, I had a laundry list of things that I was very unhappy about. Um, and I think in switching my own mindset and how I relate to my day, it really helped me, <laughs> as I wrote, um, claw my way out of just the giant hole of depression that I had found myself in. Yeah, I I can really relate to that. I think it's really easy to walk around with a bad things list. I know I walk around with a bad things list. And for some reason that comes so much more naturally than the good things list. Like we never see an amazing sunset and are like, oh God, again, another really great <laughs> right. sunset. You know, like, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> it just goes the other way. So we do have to have discipline and make ourselves um, write it down or at least think it. And I wonder for you, was there a power in that cumulative, um, you know, list that you were building? Did you find yourself going back and rereading it? Yes. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's funny, I guess, um, in addition to rereading it, I find themes um, now that it's grown extensively. I'm, I find that I'm always very grateful for nice weather. That's always a go-to for me. Um, I really enjoy hearing my kids laugh um, and sharing, I guess, some silly time with them. Um, but th there are definite themes. I also truly love any chance I get to be on the water. So that's always a theme for me as well. Uh, any chance I get to have that. So it's been nice to go through, pull out the themes and also over time to see what is really affecting me. So, um, yeah, it's always a little bit different, but they're, you know, I guess themes and variations. It's nice. Yeah. Well, I almost feel like in a way you kind of build an owner's manual for yourself. And so when things get dark, you you can be like, okay, I really need an infusion of water today or, you know, whatever right. it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. um, so I want to ask you about the role that writing is playing in general in your survivorship. You're a psychotherapist, as we know, and you said that you sometimes, you know, tell clients to make a gratitude um, or practice, start a gratitude practice. So what um, I guess I just want to ask what role writing a story like you wrote today is playing in your survivorship and how you feel writing maybe compares to, say, um, a support group or other aspects of support that people go to. I find that um, writing for me allows me to. I think pull apart the aspects of my diagnosis, the aspects of my survivorship that I don't necessarily think about. Um, April, you always talk about in your workshops going beyond our medical resume, which, you know, I can recite, I think, in my sleep. It's very possible that in my sleep I can go through all of that. Um, but what I really appreciate about writing is that I can, I guess, uncover feelings that I had, uncover aspects of that medical resume 
that are deeper than just, this was my diagnosis, this is what happened. Um, and I find that when I am writing, things come up that I never actually had ever thought about. So, um, yeah, I, in fact, in writing my piece that I just read, um, it wasn't until I actually wrote the words that I thought, oh, that's exactly what I was doing, that I felt so betrayed by, by, by my body initially that I chose to destroy it. But I didn't know that until I wrote it. And then I saw it on the page and I thought, oh, right. Yep. That, it put like six months of my life into complete focus. And it wasn't anything I had ever uncovered. I hadn't talked about it in therapy with my therapist. It just wasn't there. It wasn't anything that I had thought about, but I was able to uncover it just by writing. And I think that's been extremely helpful for me just to really go in depth in terms of uh, what I need therapeutically, I think, and in terms of healing, which has been nice. Mm -hmm. I think it really is a conversation that we don't know we need to have with ourselves until we put pen to paper and it allows us to tap into something that's happening on a level that we really can only go to by either dreaming or writing somehow. And the thing I really love about that example that you just brought up, Erin, about, you know, betraying the betrayal of your body and you just being like, fine, you know, you're dead to me now and I will just abuse you is when I read that it resonated so deeply with me and a place that I had gone myself as well. And so I think that's also the power of writing these stories and allowing ourselves to be so vulnerable is that you give words to someone else who also was like, oh my God, that's also, that's what I was doing. You know, I didn't mm -hmm. even know that. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. My last question for you is about the role of writing as legacy. And I know there's a lot of writing you're doing right now for yourself. I'm wondering, are you also writing your stories with your boys in mind, with, you know, your husband in mind? Like how is, What's that aspect of your survivorship? Mm -hmm. um, I, I always, I think from the time I was very young, have had these, <laughs> and I don't know where it came from, but these grand ideas that, and back when I was much younger, it was like, well, when I'm 80 years old and I die, someone will come across my old diaries and, you know, think they're just wonderful and want to publish them. <laughs> which I'm not really sure how my fourth grade diary would be anything that anyone would want to read because even I cringe at it. But, you know, that's what I thought when I was nine. <laughs> um, but I think now for myself, uh, my writing, while it is for myself in so many ways, there are definitely aspects of it that I know that will chronicle this whole process that my kids will always have that they can share with whomever you know, comes along in their lives. Um, and my husband will always have as well, which is really nice to know that I will still be here. Sorry, give me a sec. It's okay. Yeah. I will still be here. 
on the page, even if I'm not physically. Yeah, absolutely. I remember when, um, when I was losing my dad to pancreatic cancer, he was telling me all the stories, you know, all the stories of his childhood, all the stories of my childhood, stories of the land that I grew up on. And as much as it was helping me to hear them, I could see it was huge for him to share those stories and in a way get to relive and, you know, taste life twice Yeah, mm-hmm. through the cataloging of that. I think it's very powerful. It is. It is. It's nice. Um, I've done writing about when I was much younger stories that I don't, I think most people have kind of a card catalog of stories that they share with people. Oh, I, you know, I broke my hand when I was seven or my wrist, actually, whatever it may be um, that you you can kind of pull out and share. But there are definitely things that I have been writing about that I would never think to share with anyone, but the writing is just there and it comes and I think, oh yeah, I'm going to write about this thing that I did when I was nine or, you know, whatever it is. And it's been, it's been really nice to just begin the process of fleshing out aspects of myself that I didn't know needed to be fleshed out. Mm-hmm. Oh, well, I am just so glad, Erin, that you're doing this work, that in that you shared this piece with us today and your feelings about writing. Again, thank, thank you. you. Yeah. So, Erin, where can people find you online if they want to follow you? Um, I am on Instagram and my handle is um, at E.M. Weiss, I think. I think you're right, too. (laughs) We'll link you in the show notes. And it started, of course, my Instagram account started as um, just my regular old, you know, sharing photos of my kids and myself and a lot of four-leaf clovers because I find them all over. Um, But it, while it does continue to talk about my life, I also do a lot of just communicating about living with metastatic breast cancer. Um, and I've connected with so many other people, women, um, who are both cancer survivors, breast cancer survivors and, and thrivers. And I find the community to be just really great. Um, and I think now, um, I have more breast cancer friends on, uh, Instagram than I do non-cancer friends. And it's, it's nice. I like it. It's been really great. So, Oh, that's great. I love that. Well, we'll definitely link to you in the notes. So, um, you might pick up a few more breast cancer friends along the way. (laughs) Well, today's writer and guest was Erin Weiss. Her piece was called feeling good as hell from the 2021 issue of wildfire magazine called family. I'm April Stearns, and you've been listening to The Burn. The Burn's a production of Wildfire Magazine, where we share breast cancer stories from young women like you've never read or heard before. We also strive to inspire you to write your story like you've never written it before. Stay till the end to hear a prompt inspired by today's talk with Erin. Our producer is Bill Smith of Shoe Production, and our production assistant is Monica Haro. Want more on the life-changing transformation to be had from telling your breast cancer stories? Visit wildfirecommunity.org to find a copy of the issue shared in today's episode. 
to find our more than 30 issues in the wildfire archives and to take a writing workshop with me. Discover how to write your way back to yourself, write your way to reclaiming your body and your story. And don't forget to subscribe to The Burn and listen to it wherever you go. Finally, here's today's writing prompt. This was inspired by Erin's gratitude journaling, and I want to invite you to begin with gratitude. There's a great quote by William Arthur Ward. He says, gratitude can transform common days into thanksgivings, turn routine jobs into joy, and change ordinary opportunities into blessings. And I wholeheartedly agree with that. Gratitude lets you see wonders in life, even when you think life is horrible, even on days that are legit horrible. On days when you think what else can go wrong, writing about what you're thankful for really helps you heal. And when life is wonderful, a gratitude journal reminds you who helped you, who supported you, who encouraged you. As always for today's prompt, I want you to set your timer for eight minutes and write without stopping or editing. Keep that hand moving, your fingers tapping. There's true magic in leaning into that time. And don't edit yourself. Remember, there's no right or wrong way to answer a writing prompt. So here's the prompt. I want you to describe a moment from today. What was it and why was it your favorite moment? When we focus on small moments, we recognize the importance of each day. Think about the day you're having now. What was special to you? Eight minutes, write without stopping, see what needs to come out and where it will take you. Happy writing. Thanks for listening. And until next time, take good care.